0: to the Monterey Podcast. For more information, check out our website at montereychurch.com. Let me also welcome you on this first Sunday of June as we step into all that summer holds for us. A lot of folks already out of town as summer travels begin. Uh, About 100 young people who are headed to New Mexico to enjoy a week at Pine Springs Camp, and we certainly pray blessings upon them uh, this week as well. Uh, Last Sunday, we concluded a series on the Holy Spirit that we titled, Filled. That beautiful paradox in Scripture, as believers, we are filled with the Spirit of God, and then the challenge, Be Filled. Very similar to Scripture's emphasis on holiness. Through the work of Jesus, God has declared us holy, and then the challenge, Be Holy. Lean into who God has called you to be. And so we spent several weeks talking about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to submit to the work of the Spirit in our lives, to listen to the Spirit, to not quench the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, present, powerful, mysterious— The work of the Spirit that transforms us more and more into the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory. The work of the Spirit that empowers us to engage in the mission of God. What we could never do alone, we're able to do because of the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. This summer, we're going to explore a great text in Galatians chapter 5 that focuses on the fruit of the Spirit. The imagery is we are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit grows fruit in our lives in order that we might be poured out in the lives of others. To be a church filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and to pour out that fruit, to pour out those qualities as we engage in the mission of God, as we build relationships with others, as we bless And serve others. And so I encourage you throughout the summer uh, to spend some time reading the book of Galatians with particular focus on chapter 5. I'll have the privilege of preaching eight of the sermons during this series. You'll also have the opportunity of hearing from three other speakers throughout the summer, uh, including Hudson, who will be preaching next Sunday as we explore that quality of love. Before I read that text from Galatians 5, let me take just a moment and provide a bit of an overview of this letter Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia, a group of young churches, young believers. And so Paul reminds them that their salvation is found in Jesus alone. Many of these believers have come from Jewish backgrounds, and now these young churches have been infiltrated by Judaizing teachers who argued that one who followed Jesus also needed to keep the law of Moses, in particular the practice of circumcision. And Paul, probably as adamantly as anywhere in his writings, Paul argues we are saved, we are justified by the cross of Jesus. We are saved by grace, not by law. In fact, Paul says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. As you read Galatians, you will discover that a key word and a key idea is the word freedom. We are free in Christ. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. We've been set free from the law of Moses, not bound by the law of Moses. And so this contrast between freedom and slavery, between grace and law, and in particular in chapter 5, the contrast between living by the Spirit and living by the flesh. In fact, words like grace and freedom are so interconnected As we read the book of Galatians and as we reflect on what it means to be led by the Spirit of God, grace and freedom. If we are prone to say, and there were even folks in the first century who were prone to say this, if we're prone to say, well, if we focus on grace, that means we can live any way we choose. If we focus on freedom, that means we can live any way we choose. Paul would say immediately, no, no an appropriate focus on grace and freedom become the greatest motivations for holy living. Because when you truly understand what it means to be free in Christ, then you understand the importance of submitting to the work of the Spirit, giving your life to the will of of God. Your righteousness, Paul says, doesn't depend upon law-keeping. It doesn't depend upon a checklist. And I hope you hear that idea uh, throughout the summer, that our relationship with God doesn't depend upon a checklist, doesn't depend upon law-giving. We have been declared holy in order that we might submit to the Spirit, in order that the Spirit might grow fruit in our lives. And so hear these words from Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 13. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. Again, freedom is a recurring theme in the book of Galatians. We are free in Christ, but don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. In other words, freedom is not a license to sin. Freedom calls us to be holy, to live responsibly. Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, Paul would say. Instead, Use your freedom to serve one another in love. In fact, just a few verses earlier in this same chapter, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And now he will add to that by saying, For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as you yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. And again, I want you to notice as Paul talks about this fruit of the Spirit, and as he identifies the acts of the flesh, his emphasis is on relationships. And so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. And then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other so that you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you're not under obligation to the law of Moses When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outburst of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I've already said, anyone living living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit. The power, the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to His cross and crucified them there. Since we are living by the Spirit, Let's follow the Spirit's leading, listen, in every part of our lives. And then he circles back to relationship again. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Again, the emphasis is we submit to the Spirit in order that the fruit of the Spirit might grow in our lives. Throughout this series, as we reflect on this text in Galatians 5, as we explore the different aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, we're also going to be looking at a variety of stories from the life and ministry of Jesus in the Gospels, in particular, how the fruit of the Spirit is poured out in the life of Jesus, the greatest example we could ever point to as we talk about what it means to be led by the Spirit. And the challenge that Jesus gives us to allow ourselves to be available to the Spirit of God, that the fruit of the Spirit might grow, and that that fruit might be poured out in our lives as well. But interestingly enough, as we look at some of those stories in the Gospels, we're also going to stumble across other characters, just like you and I. And the challenge we face, the challenge that those characters faced to truly submit to the will of God. And so Let me briefly this morning take you to a story that we know well. In fact, the story is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. I'm going to read from the Gospel of Luke, the story of a young man that we often describe as a rich young ruler. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Matthew's parallel account has Jesus saying, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. And Jesus says, commandments like these, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. And Matthew's parallel account includes Jesus adding, love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, the young man said. In other words, if you would allow me to paraphrase it, I've been a pretty good person my entire life. I've got all of those commandments checked off. When Jesus heard him say this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. And again, I'm prone to want to pause for a moment. When Jesus says to the young man, you lack one thing, I suspect the young man sits up and takes notice. And by the same token, if you and I were engaged in conversation with Jesus and Jesus says, oh, by the way, you lack one thing, I would hope we would be all ears. What is that one thing, Jesus? To this young man, Jesus says, sell everything you have and give to the poor And you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God! Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Can we step back from the story for just a moment? because I think it is so easy to just pass over that story. We know it so well, but it's so easy to just pass over the story. And to say something like, well, you know, I'm not rich, and so that story really doesn't apply to me. Or to say, well, it's obvious that Jesus is telling this young man what he needs to do, to inherit life, but he's talking to that young man. He's not talking to me. He's not talking to us. And so there's really not much application in the story for me. Can I invite you to ponder a couple of ideas with me? No matter what the motivation of the young man may have been, good motivations or not so good motivations, no matter what his motivations may have been, he seems to be looking at relationship with God from a checklist mentality. And so you see all of these phrases on the screen from a checklist mentality as if to say, Jesus, I've checked all of these off. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, etc. I've kept all of those since I was a boy. In fact, Jesus, if there's anything missing, would you tell me what it is? Let me check it off as well, and then I'm good to go. In one respect, Jesus' answer is relationship with God is not about a checklist of what you've done or haven't done. Relationship with God is all about you and me surrendering everything to God, submitting to the Spirit and to where the Spirit of God leads us. Interestingly, all of the commands that Jesus initially identifies – have to do with relationships with one another. And in fact, as I noted in the reading a moment ago, in Matthew's parallel account, he even includes the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That emphasis on relationships. What I want you to notice is the command that Jesus did not mention initially and that he does not mention directly is the command, you are to have no other gods before me. The sin of idolatry, putting someone or something before God. Might I suggest, in huge ways, that plays into what Jesus tells this young man? Sell what you have, give to the poor, and then come follow me. Because we would all recognize that the young man's devotion to his money was greater than his devotion to God. Is it possible? for us to do the same? Is it possible to look at those commands with a checklist mentality, or perhaps to compare ourselves with others? Oh, I'm a good person. In fact, I'm definitely better than most of you are. Is it possible to look at that text with a checklist mentality? Well, I've kept all of those commandments all of my life, In fact, Jesus says, if I'm missing anything, let me know what it is, and I'll check it off, and then I'm good to go. While again, at one level, that may make all kinds of sense. At another level, it completely misses the point. Relationship with God, keeping in step with the Spirit, is not about a checklist. It's not about law keeping, because obviously none of us can keep the law perfectly. It is all about surrendering to God, following Jesus wherever He leads us. As Aaron reminded us last Sunday in closing the series on the Spirit of God, it is being willing to go where the Spirit leads us, where the wind blows. And for some of us, that's scary. Not only in terms of where the Spirit might lead us, but maybe even more specifically that we have to give up control that we have to fully surrender to the Spirit of God. And so with that illustration of the rich young ruler in the back of your mind, let me take us back to the text in Galatians chapter 5. Paul says the acts of the sinful nature, the acts of the flesh, are obvious. Those sins that you see on the screen, and the list is big enough that we couldn't get all of them on one slide what Paul identifies as the acts of the flesh, the acts of the sinful nature. My, my question, just like my question with a rich young ruler is, is it possible for us to look at that list from a checklist vantage point? Sexual immorality? Well, I'm not guilty of that. Check. Sorcery, witchcraft, drunkenness, wild parties? I'm not guilty of any of those. Check. But then some of those... Others. Jealousy. Outburst of anger. Selfish ambition. Envy. Well, maybe I'm guilty of some of those, but... And then we tend to go in a couple of directions. One, we tend to categorize sin. And so, here are the biggies. Here are the major sins and then here are the little ones, the minor sins. But have you ever noticed that when we begin to categorize sin in that respect, the biggies are sins that we, we really don't struggle with. Those are sins that other folks struggle with. The little sins, as we describe them, are the sins that we're guilty of. But after all, we describe them as little sins. We tend to minimize them because, again, they're the little ones. We tend to justify our behavior because, after all, from a checklist mentality, I've checked off the majority of those. I'm not guilty of the majority of those. And so we tend to justify our behavior. Reminds me of the expert in the law, a story we also find in the Gospel of Luke back in chapter 10. The expert in the law who comes to Jesus with basically the same question the rich young ruler poses. What do I do to get eternal life? And Jesus turns the question back on him. And says, how do you read the law? How do you understand the law? And he responds by saying, greatest commandment is to love God. Second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. And then the expert of the law, Luke's byline, the expert in the law wanting to justify himself, asks Jesus, and so who is my neighbor? As if to say, if you will clearly tell me who is my neighbor, then I will clearly know who is not my neighbor. I know the law tells me to love my neighbor. And so, Jesus, if you will clearly tell me who my neighbor is, I'll love those folks. But that also gives me justification to not love those who are not my neighbors. And rather than answering the question directly, Jesus tells a story that we know as the parable of the good Samaritan. The punchline being, everyone is our neighbor. But even beyond that, where Jesus turns the expert of the law's world upside down, Jesus is telling him through that story that even the despised Samaritan is his neighbor. And that if he's going to honor what it means to love your neighbor, he's got to love the despised Samaritan as well as anyone else. It's not about a checklist. It's about relationship. It's about surrendering to the will of God. It's about submitting to the Spirit. And then at times, as we look at this list of sins, as we identify some as big sins and some as little sins, it is so easy for us to become judgmental of others, especially those who struggle with sins that we don't struggle with, or folks who are guilty of the biggies, And it leads us to unkindness rather than kindness. It leads us to harshness rather than gentleness. It leads us to hatred rather than love. Again, that contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, did you notice as I read from that text in Galatians 5 a moment ago that Paul, as he identifies the acts of the flesh, Paul doesn't stop along the way and say, oh, this is a big one and this is a little one. All groups all of them together. Same is true for all of the different lists of sins that we find in Paul's writings. They're all grouped together. Sin, no matter what the specific sin is, sin separates us from God. And so as we reflect, even on this text in Galatians 5 this summer, might I suggest that it is time for us to come to grips with the sins that we struggle with. To not look across the owl and say, oh, he or she is guilty of that. To not look across the community or the world and say, he or she is guilty of that. But to come to grips with where we struggle. Again, it's not a matter of a checklist. It's all about surrender. Which leads to that little sentence that we will explore throughout the summer. The fruit of the Spirit or the kind of fruit that the Spirit produces in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Again, and I hope you hear me clearly, our human tendency is to approach even that from a checklist vantage point. Let's see. Things like love, joy, peace maybe faithfulness, maybe one or two others. Yeah, I can check those off. I'm doing pretty well in those areas. But don't talk to me about patience or kindness or self-control. And we begin to justify ourselves again with a checklist mentality. Well, I've checked off more than half of the words that you see on the screen. Again, my tendency may be to say, say, I'm better than, than you are. Would you please notice a couple of things as we step into this series this summer. One, the word translated fruit in this text is singular. Paul is not describing the fruits of the Spirit, plural. He's describing the fruit of the Spirit, singular. In other words, this is a composite picture of what it means to be led by the Spirit. The Spirit grows this kind of fruit in our lives. Yes, nine qualities that are a part of the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll be looking at all nine qualities this summer. But you cannot separate those qualities from one another, as if to say, well, I've got this one down, but I don't need to worry about the other one because I'm doing so well here. Notice a recognition, again, that they're all interconnected. Love it's all about patience, which is all about self-control, which is all about gentleness, which is all about goodness, which is all about faithfulness. The second thing to notice in this text is that it is the Spirit of God that is producing the fruit, not us. Uh, far too often, again, we want control. In fact, if you'll just give me ten easy steps to being patient, or to exercise in self-control, where I can check that off. No, the answer is submitting to the Spirit of God. Or if I can put it another way, making ourselves available to the Spirit of God, listening to the Spirit of God. And we make ourselves available in a whole variety of ways. We talked about some of that in the previous series. Such a variety of spiritual disciplines where we make ourselves available where we pray, where we engage in study and solitude and service. Again, not from a checklist mentality as if to say, well, I've done prayer, I've done study, I've done service, and so now I'm spiritual. No, 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 no. Disciplines disciplines that allow us to make ourselves available to create space in our lives for the Spirit of God to be at work and to grow fruit in our lives. And we do so The intent of this series this summer, we do so in order to be poured out. In order that the fruit of the Spirit, those incredible qualities of love and joy and goodness and gentleness, might be poured out into the lives of others. And so, here's the hard question. And the question I want us to grapple with throughout the summer. What does a Spirit-filled church look like? What does a Spirit-filled believer look like? Look like? And and we answered those questions somewhat in the previous series. But again, as we focus on Galatians 5 this summer, what does a spirit filled church look like? And I would answer by saying, Spirit filled church is a church in which the fruit of the Spirit lives and in which the fruit of the Spirit is poured out in the lives of others. And so maybe the better question is what do our neighbors, what does our community, what does our world see when they look at the church, when they look at you? and me. I've used this illustration before as we talk about the church, but I love looking at the church from a systems perspective, or to use Paul's language, looking at the church as a body. Paul says the church is a body. The church is a system made up of many parts, interconnected. And if we were talking about a systems perspective, when it comes to a church or a family or any organization, one characteristic of a system is it behaves as if it were a person with a life of its own. And so if we were talking about the church in Corinth, we might easily say that church was arrogant. Now that doesn't mean every single member of that church was arrogant, but describing the church as a whole, the church was arrogant. The church was divided. What kind of words or phrases might we use to describe the Monterey church? Maybe words like the Monterey church is a generous church. Monterey Church is a friendly church. Doesn't mean everybody's friendly. But describing the church as if it were a person with a life of its own. This is a friendly church, a generous church, whatever words we might use. Now, compare that thought to this text in Galatians 5. When the world looks at us, would they describe the church? Would they describe us as a church that pours out the fruit of the Spirit? A church that is filled with love, joy, gentleness, kindness, filled with those qualities, filled with that fruit, ready to pour that fruit out into a community and a world that desperately needs it? Or would we be described by words Paul uses in the list he identifies as the acts of the flesh or other list of sins in his writings? Would we be described as being guilty of hate or unkindness, or gossip, or unwholesome talk, guilty of judging others, condemning others, tearing others down. How would our community describe us as a body of believers? And to recognize as the world looks at us as a body, to recognize because all of us are a part of this body, that all of us have an influence on how others look at this church. And so what about my language? What about my behavior? Are there areas of our lives where we need to evaluate who we are, where submission is taking place or not taking place? That would be one of my challenges as we step into this summer together. The decisions that we make on a daily basis, the language that we use, the interactions we have with others, whether it's with one another, with our neighbors, with our enemies. If I can be so bold, what about our social media posts? What about our anger? What about our ambitions? What about our priorities? And in the midst of all of that, to remember that bottom line is not a checklist. It's all about submitting our lives to the Spirit of God. Go sell everything you have. Give to the poor. And then come follow me. And so what do you need to sell today? Where do you need to begin today in order to create the kind of space for the Spirit of God to grow that fruit in our lives? Maybe the beginning place for all of us on the front end of this series is simply to be people of humility this morning who lay our lives before God and say, God, here I am. I surrender all. And if we can bless you, serve you, pray for you as we together talk about the importance of that decision, we would invite you. A couple of our shepherds will be here at the front. If we can serve you, we welcome you. Let's stand together as we sing.